0: Psalm 71, Psalm 71, and uh, there's some Bibles at the back, the words will actually appear on the screens behind me, if you'd like to read along, and then we're going to read at the beginning of Psalm 71. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge, to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From my birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. I have become a sign to many. You are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. Do not cast me away when I am old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. For my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. They say, God has forsaken him. Pursue him and seize him, for no one will rescue him. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly, God, to help me. May my accusers perish in shame. May those who want to harm me be covered with scorn and disgrace. As for me, I shall always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate them all. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteous deeds, yours alone. There's an extremely famous photograph, a war photograph taken of a U.S. Army tank in the middle of the Vietnam War, and it's carrying a whole bunch of uh, wounded, now veterans, U.S. Marine veterans, and the pictures become emblematic. It's from the Battle of Hue, which is one of the most famous battles of that war, and there's a pale figure right in the middle of the frame who's been shot, and his name was Alvin Burt Grantham. He was 18 years old at the time. He'd just been a bricklayer in Alabama a few weeks before, and he was thrust into the heat of conflict. He was in there at the end of January, uh, where Hugh, the main battle, was taking place. The Viet Cong launched a huge assault against the American forces, and it lasted for 25 whole days. And the warriors were controlling an ever-shifting patchwork inside this three-square-mile area and the fighting was inch by inch, room by room, he recalls, and his unit was nearly always directly across from the enemy. Each morning, action began again, and the unit were ordered to send squads across, and the squads were taken out nearly every time. The Marines would spend excruciating minutes, sometimes hours, trying to drag back all their wounded and killed. Where are you? Are you in a war and do you recognize yourself in that scene? Perhaps not physically, that's not the reality for all of us, but the language of the Bible, the language of the Psalms, seems unmistakably clear that we are all at war if we belong to God and certainly if we are part of His kingdom. What is a war? It's two people fighting over something, or two entities, two parties fighting over something. That's through in every conflict in the world, and that's through in the spiritual battle or war that we find ourselves in. And people are always, the entities are always fighting over something. There's something to be gained, and they're wrestling for it. And it's you and me. It's people. It is the image bearers of God. That is the whole point. That's the reason that we find ourselves embattled, because we are God's workmanship, His masterpiece that we find in Genesis 1, and then Genesis 3, everything goes horribly wrong, and there's another influence, and it's coming to try and tear away us, God's people, His creation. And there's the equal and opposite dangers that we explained in the video on thinking of this warfare. We can see everything as warfare. We can overinterpret every circumstance in our lives as being overtly Competent and overly spiritual, and we can have an obsession with the spirit realm, and that usually doesn't lead to much balance in life. Or, uh, what's probably been more the temptation in our society ever since the 1700s has been well, that stuff's for more backward people, maybe in the Amazon jungle or in Africa somewhere. We are much more uh, evolved and rational than that, and that's a complete danger, too. That is perhaps more of a danger because you're utterly ignorant to the reality of spiritual war. So, we want to find a biblical balance, and the reason the Psalms are so good for that is because they express every facet of what it is to be human, and particularly what it is to be human when you're caught in the middle of this battle that is going on in the world all around you, and you are trying to follow God and be a part of His kingdom and represent Him, and there's difficulty and there's war. Uh, many theologians have called the Psalms God's prayer book. And when we're thinking about war and thinking about prayer, it's actually an eminently helpful place to go. So, we're in Psalm 71. Part of the second book of Psalms, the big idea in book two of the Psalms is kingship, God's kingdom, God's rule, and how He distributes that rule, how He relates to His king. Now, there's a level in which the King is often David, and the King is often uh, the head of israel and he 's talking about god 's kingdom in the Old Testament and what that looked like. It was a real nation. Uh, it was all revolving around the what God was doing with israel, but there 's a sense in which even in the Old Testament, God is already revealing himself as king back in psalm forty four it 's probably written by David and he's acknowledging that he's king, and he's got rule, but he says God is the true king. God's people have always recognized that, that as much as we get to do, as much as we get to rule and influence and uh, be part of praying in God's kingdom here on earth, he's really in charge, and that's where everything starts, and that's why this part of the Psalms is so helpful. We're in Psalm 71, and we don't know who wrote it. Most of the Psalms are probably written by David. Uh, the end of Psalm 72 says, here ends the prayers of David, so there's good indication, but the author doesn't actually say. Seems to be an older person looking back and reflecting on life, a life of struggle and difficulty, gut-wrenching honesty about how difficult it is when someone is being opposed and they're trying to do what God wants, but they face opposition and they face difficulty. And it's somebody looking back and reflecting And in a way, distilling for us how they go through that, the best lessons about how to survive spiritual warfare when you are in the heat of it. I want to consider a few things from the psalm. Go through it sequentially from verses 12 to 16 because I think that it's got some amazing principles for us. Firstly, I want to think about what it tells us about waking up to war. I want to think about then the weapons that tells us about war, and then finally the winner of the great war. We'll think about these three things, the waking up to the war, the weapons of our war, and winning the war as we find them through verses 12 to 16. In verse 12, the psalmist declares, Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly to help me. He's crying out, it's a beautiful poem. Most of the Psalms is wonderful poetry, and he's using these two lines to intensify the point of the distress that he is feeling. And we don't know if it's David, but it almost certainly could be. The The way the psalm is framed, it's almost like we're meant to think of David. It's meant to link us to David, who was often embattled, often in struggle. And you know, what? the amazing thing is there's so many references in the psalm to being old, and even in old age. You know, most of us have the picture of when I'm old, I'm going to retire. I've worked my whole life, maybe raised a family, and I'm just going to enjoy life. And it's kind of bad news, but it's also good because we're on God's side, is that even in old age, the reality of this warfare that we're in, there's going to be struggle. He doesn't get to just put his feet up. Uh, It's almost certainly written by an older person reflecting, and he's saying, even in his closing days, he doesn't get a break. Do not be far from me, God. Help me. I'm still struggling. And It would have amazing parody with the story that we find in the likes of 1 Kings where David in his closing days, he's about to die and his throne's going to be passed on. And the guy he wants, he's decided he'll go to Solomon. David wasn't always the best father or organizer in his own house. And it's not clear. And there's a coup and Joab, who had been his right-hand man for years, decides to join in on that and help one of his other sons try and grab the throne by force. And it gets sorted out, and uh, God is seen sovereignly working to make the succession go to Solomon. But even in David's old age, we know that he struggled and that there was difficulty. But regardless of whether this is about David's story or whether it is written by him, it's emblematic of something we see all through the Old Testament, all through the reality of God's people, His covenant people, especially with Israel. Struggle is at the center of it from beginning to end. And it's normative. It's normal. Israel is really a good way to think of them as they're the Old Testament representation of God's kingdom, what He's doing in the world. And now, you and I, with this side of Jesus, we get to be part of that in Jesus' kingdom. And it looks a bit different, and, you know, we're not invading other countries in Jesus' name, thankfully. But Israel is emblematic of it, and Israel struggled. And do we find that? Do we think of it as normal? Well, 1 Peter 4 says, don't ever consider it strange or weird if you go through a hard time um, for the sake of God or just because you said yes to God and you signed up for it. In a sense, there's a way in which the whole Bible reinforces this is normal. This is what it looks like to be a part of God's kingdom. And that's not supposed to be depressing because everybody struggles. Everyone has things that they find difficult. The stuff that we go through is often what uh, non-Christians go through. But the beauty and the blessing of it is we go through this with God. We go through this representing God. Some of the things we go through uniquely because we serve God. But that is actually the greatest comfort because the ruler of all the spiritual stuff that we're thinking about, the ultimate victor of this battle, is the one who has called us and the one who is on our side. But let's just notice what the psalmist does don't be far to me from me, O God. I cry out to you, it says in some other translations. The best thing that we can do is cry out to God when we realize, we look around, we see the fact that it's Vietnam. We see that the world is a complete mess. Maybe there's some weeks where it hits us all of a sudden that we are in a bit of a mess, or people whom we know, our loved ones, their lives are a mess waking up to the fact that this is a reality. We're in a war, and we need God's help in every single situation, and closeness to God is key. So, what does the psalmist do? Well, the first weapon we see is that they intercede. They ask God to do some stuff. They express a hope in God by praying to Him something that is important. May, in verse 13, my accusers perish in shame, May those who want to harm me be covered with disgrace. The New American Standard Bible renders this, let those who are adversaries of my soul be ashamed and consumed. Again, uh, if we really want to ground this in the experience of the writers, David had plenty of people who accused him of things that were not the case and weren't true. David had loads of people who opposed him because he was trying to live for God, live out God's kingdom on Earth, and what 's fascinating is that the word that is used here for the accuser in Hebrew it means adversity, and these terms are almost interchangeable a lot of the time in Hebrew in the Old Testament. It just means one who opposes um, in its essence it 's where actually we get our word for Satan. If you were to look this up in the Hebrew Bible, it would be the satan that 's where we get this whole idea. And what do we know about Satan, about the accuser? Well, his job description hasn't changed a whole lot from the times of the Old Testament. Uh, In Revelation 12.10, we find he's constantly accusing God's people. Uh, In Matthew 4, Jesus' trial and temptation, we find he comes and he opposes directly God and what God is trying to do, how he's bringing the kingdom in. He tried to get Jesus to go around the cross and not die for you and me. That would have been a great win for him. Now, got to be careful. David probably didn't understand all of this. Almost certainly the, the Psalm writer did not see that this was all coming, and they didn't have the. We are so blessed to live on the side of everything Jesus has done. So he didn't have a full picture of even the, the one who rules this evil realm, the one who's always opposing God's people, being one central, uh, fairly powerful being. But he's, look, he's still engaging with it. He's still fine. I'm being opposed. He's still fine. I'm being accused of just things I didn't do. I'm uh, there's a whole bunch of accusations flying and landing on me, and I am facing real struggle. And so, in some sense, his experience is continuous right through to ours. Although we might know, be able to fill in a few more of the blanks of uh, who Satan is. And sometimes it is our own missteps, our own mistakes, things we've done wrong ourselves that actually feed into this. He's talking about being accused. Well, David didn't always get it right. David was accused, and sometimes that was justified in a way. Warfare can be a mix when we're being accused and opposed of uh, outright lies, blatant lies, complete opposition just for who we are, but it can be sometimes complicated and mixed in with the fact that we don't always get it right. You and I know what it is that um, we're sinners, and we need help, and we are not. We've not always kept God's law And that's kind of the difficult thing about it. It might be hard to work out, you know, where does one start and where does the other begin? But he prays. Look at the confidence of what he prays. May my accusers be put to shame. The psalmist wanted vindication and justice. How does that work when we know that, well, we've been in the wrong sometimes too. This is where we're so lucky to have Jesus. Jesus. He's justified you. He's cleansed you. He's forgiven you. You are free. You know why the one who's the accuser in revelation is being set up there as a liar and one who's doing wrong by accusing God's people? Because if you've trusted in Jesus, He has no legal right or standing to accuse you. He has no more power of you. Colossians, He has delivered us from the power of darkness forever. And so, in this sense, we can pray with the psalmist, may my accusers be put to shame. To open shame. Isn't that a bit harsh? I don't think so. And the Bible doesn't think so. Because if we think of where the roots of anybody who accuses God's people, the opposing God and His rule and His kingdom here in the world, where that comes from, it's dark, it's demonic. And they 're on the losing side, revelation two thousand and ten, the devil who had fooled them will be thrown into the lake of burning fire with sulphur, and the wild animal and the false preacher are already there they 're symbolically others who have helped join in the kingdom of evil they 'll be punished day and night forever so when we 're talking about the defeat and the destruction of god 's enemies, we need to be at least as harsh as the Bible itself is, and that 's actually good news because we 're talking about pure Unmitigated evil—you know, the genocide that we hate to see on the news, uh, the horrific crimes that are committed against children and vulnerable people, and all that stuff that we decry in our world, and even the stuff that we see in Glasgow that is wrong and that is unjust—we're talking about the father, the source, the the very lifeblood of all that evil, and it being judged and delivered. And friends, you and I, if we trust in Jesus we get to pray with the psalmist, may my accusers be put to shame, because we get to be free. We get to stand under God. He is our guy. He protects us. He delivers us, and then His enemies are our enemies. And it is a great hope for you and me that that evil will be quashed and quenched and dealt with forever. In fact, it makes us unique as Christians, the worldview and the hope that we have because every other worldview, every other philosophy, everything else, they try and do something with the evil and the injustice in the world. They try and get a category for it, or maybe they try and be really stoic and go, well, it's just about having inner peace. No, we need justice. We all have this thing in our heart where we're longing for justice. If you've ever been wronged, if you've ever seen wrong, you want justice. And the answer that we get in Scripture is there is an evil accuser, a father of all this injustice and evil, And justice is coming, and that is one of our great hope, one of our greatest hopes with all of this. So we intercede, we cry out, we cry out to God for that justice to come, your kingdom come. That includes a judgment for evil. And then secondly, in verse 14, in terms of weapons, we see praise and thanksgiving. As for me, I shall always have hope. I will praise you more and more in the thick of it the psalmist has lived a long life and as we thought about towards the end this battle is still raging but he has a continual hope and god's people have a continual hope the word that he uses for i will hope in you or i will praise you it has a sense of sometimes i think we can look at characters in the bible or we can pull moral lessons out of the psalms and go see you just need to hope in god you just need to hope in god all the time And you might be thinking, well, what about the days I'm really struggling with that? What about the days I I can't be bothered praying or hoping? And the energy is a bit depleted to do all of this. The Hebrew word has actually a sense of it could be doing something all the time, but it can also be remembering to do something and coming back to it. Okay, I didn't do it today or I didn't do it the day before or that was a really bad wick. But when you look at the story and the arc of my life and where I'm going, I'm hoping in God. I come back to the foundation and the source of my hope. I continue or continually hope in my God. Do we find this in the New Testament? Yes, it's one book. It's God's revelation. 1 Thessalonians 5, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Well, I'm in the middle of battle. I know that Satan is opposing me this way, God, I know things are going really wrong, and I have this great personal struggle, and actually just telling me to hope in God is kind of like sour Medicine, because I don't see much of a reason to. Well, is there a power in it? Absolutely. You might remember Pete mentioned Daniel and what he did. Daniel is actually a good example of how this works. And some of this is simple. We think that maybe spiritual warfare's gotta be cosmic and huge. Actually A lot of it takes place at the personal, what I decide to do with God every day level. In Daniel 6, once he knew that the fateful edict, you know, the document that said him and all his people were going to be wiped out when it was signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber and opened them towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Friends, this stuff works. Giving thanks before God is powerful. It is powerful in the midst of battle, and that's not just a New Testament thing. That's why the Psalms are full of this. Ever since God has called people into relationship with Himself, it has been essential for them to go, God, I thank you, and we've been learning about that in the prayer course. Why is it so powerful? I don't fully know, but I know it does work, and many of us who have been on the road for any kind of length of time know It really works when you thank God for stuff, even when you don't feel like thanking Him, or even when you feel like you don't have much to thank Him for. Start simple. Start small. God, thank you for the breath in my lungs today. That oxygen, every molecule of it is a gift from His hand. God, thank you that I know you, that I know your name. Lots of people don't. God, thank you for the clothes on my back and the food that I have, or whatever mercies that have been extended to me today. And I think this is so powerful because think about where we are. We're in war. There are two teams. There is only two teams. There's God's kingdom and His rule and there's whatever opposes that. And we know enough from the Bible to know we are being watched. I don't mean to freak anybody out. I know it's coming up to Halloween. But we are are being watched. The bad guys, the bad team, the bad spiritual forces, they do look to God's people. Sometimes to oppose them. Sometimes, you know, to see where we might be tripped up. Think of what you're doing when you're thanking God we are going, I'm not intimidated. I'm not actually going to agree with the narrative that tells me there is no point in thanking God. I will hope in my God. And for anybody who's watching and anybody who sees my life, I will show them that I'm not going to throw in the towel and I'm not going to give up on God because I had a bad day, week or month. Cullum read it uh, in the psalm for us earlier. David and the psalmist had enemies who were just waiting for them to turn back and say, yep, this God is powerless. This is a pointless exercise. He can't deliver me thanking God is the complete opposite spirit for that. Thanking God is the complete opposite spirit from everything we learn in the world today. In a world that tells you, go get this, make yourself into something and into that, and amass for yourself as much as you possibly can, be a self-made man, and you display to the heavenly host and to anybody who's watching, actually, I'm thanking God actually, I'm having gratitude, even though I'm not getting stuff, even though I seem to be getting nothing but trial and difficulty, and I'm knowing opposition, I'm thanking God. And the very practice of that humbles us and helps us to be centered and know we're not the center of the universe. And even our battle today, as bad as it might be, isn't actually the center of the universe and definitely isn't the end story and isn't the final verdict on my life. God is, and God will be, because I belong to Him, so I'm thanking Him. Thanking and praising God has a power to it. And then in verse 15, he goes on, And my mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts, all the day long. This is another very unglamorous weapon when we're thinking about spiritual warfare, but it's powerful and it's real. Testimony. Speaking out what God has done for us, and for all that we anybody else that we know that He's worked in their life, proclaiming seems to be a weapon that the psalmist comes back to again and again and again. And proclaiming does the same thing; it lets everyone know, no, God hasn't abandoned me, and I haven't abandoned Him. I'm going to say what He has done. Speaking out is powerful and the psalmist would have been aware that so much of the Jewish identity, while God, this was God's covenant people in the Old Testament, it was built on, God has rescued us, God has done something great for us. We were a people in slavery and bondage, a picture, if you want, of uh, the great powers, the evil powers, and God liberating people from that. And what command did God give His people once they were free? tell your sons, tell your daughters what God did in Egypt, and then make sure they tell the next generation and keep telling. Why is this such an important discipline and why does it continue to today? Because it prevents against something corrosive coming in. The New Testament speaks about not giving Satan a foothold, just a tiny little crag in a rock to start chipping away at your life and pulling away at your spirituality. This is an amazing way to stop that from happening. Tell what God has done. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, tell people. That's why it's an essential part of coming to faith in Him. You've got to tell somebody that it happened. You've got to proclaim. It is a witness to anybody who's watching as well what God has done and the fact that He is powerful and alive and active in our lives. But also use God's prayer book. Use the Psalms. Speak out what God has said Back to him we 're learning that in the course Colossians one thirteen says he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness when everything is going terribly around us, remind God that i don 't belong to the kingdoms of darkness anymore. Help me to see that this is true sometimes we don't feel like the faith is there, sometimes we don 't feel like we are on the winning team. Speak out the words of scripture in our prayers and to others and Sometimes it is laying hold, as Pete said, of the promises of God. God has promised, if you have trusted in Him, that He is going to complete what He started in you. He is going to make you holy. He is going to make you pure. He is going to make you exactly into what from all eternity He planned you would be a reflection of Jesus Christ, His own Son. Let's speak that out to God. Say, God, you said you would complete your work in me. I feel like this week it's gone backwards. I need you to help me and complete the work in me. This is a powerful weapon because when you speak your faith, when you speak that I've trusted in the blood of Jesus and God has saved me, no earthly power can take that away from you. It's normal for us to struggle, and all through the history of Christianity, um, earthly powers, heavenly powers have opposed God's people and what God is doing in this world. And people have died because they refused not to do this. They said, I'm going to keep speaking God's word. I'm going to keep saying what he's done for me because actually that's more important than anything I have in this world because I'm going to live in eternity for a long time and we all will and the most important thing is to be saved and covered by Jesus and then to always be ready to testify to that because of what he's done for us. And this is actually part of God's strategy, his kingdom. This is how it's coming in the world. Revelation twelve eleven. They triumphed, that's the saints, you and me, who are saved by God. They triumphed over Him, that's the great enemy, by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus saving us, and by the word of their testimony. You know how exciting this is? You and I get to be part. Anytime we tell somebody that Jesus has saved and rescued and delivered us, we're taking part in this cosmic battle. And it may not feel like it, and we may not feel terribly significant, but we're (laughs) significant enough that God loved us before there was a world even made and he called us to be part of what he's doing, taking back enemy territory by telling Jesus about Jesus that he's real, and he rescues people, and he continues to do it. We play a role in this. So we have weapons. We have prayer and calling out to God. Once we've woken up to the war, we can do that, and we can pray God's promises, and we can testify to what God has done, and we can do all of this because, foundationally, of who God is. Verse 16, I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, sovereign Lord. I will pro- pro- proclaim your righteous deeds, yours alone. The psalmists uh, had an understanding that God alone is righteous. They knew that actually, absolutely everybody in this world was a sinner. They made mistakes, they broke in God's law, and they all deserved His judgment. And they knew that there was this understanding they had that I need God to stand up for me. He is the only one who is truly righteous. And this week, you might have heard about it already, and you might hear something about this week, a uh, very special commemoration that's coming up. It's 500 years since the Reformation started. And why is that important? Well, all, that was all about a young monk in Germany who was becoming totally disillusioned with uh, the way the church was acting and was kind of actually thinking, is this really the kingdom of God? People are um, selling stuff and, s- and profiting off it and saying that that's through religion. And as he became more disillusioned, he then started, he was a Bible scholar, really studying what the Bible said and kind of going, I don't think the church is telling me that I have something to do with getting right with God and that there's goodness in me that p- helps kind of get me in the right place before God. Because ultimately, everyone has a conscience and everyone knows I need to be right with God. And as he started to think of this, he started to see in the scriptures, nobody is right before God by themselves. And the lights came on for Martin Luther when he realized God is the only being in the whole universe that's perfectly morally pure and right. And what he does when we have faith in Jesus is he says to you and me, you're right now. It's as if you never sinned. I'm giving you Jesus' perfect record of righteousness. That's what the Reformation was all about. And all the way back in the Psalms, here we have it. This is the only way we can even start to engage in spiritual warfare or nobody on the right team is by trusting Jesus is perfectly righteous and he died for me and therefore now I am right before God. Not because of anything I've done. And it's actually in a sense got nothing to do with me. God just loved me enough and is gracious enough that He'll give me that record of righteousness when I trust in Him, confess my sin, and turn to Him. And so, friends, that's where it all starts. And for you and me, if we haven't trusted in Jesus, there is nothing more important, because there is a cosmic battle, and there is evil, and it wants your heart. And that's what the struggle is all about. And inch by inch, God in His kingdom is taking back hearts and lives and souls, and all you have to do is say yes to Jesus. And hold our hands up because none of all of us started here going, I'm not righteous. I haven't kept God's law and I'm on the wrong team. And we do that and we trust that Jesus died for us and all of a sudden you're welcomed into this kingdom that's been going on since the time of the Psalmist where God is rescuing the people to Himself in the warfare of this world. So, let's pray about that together. Our Father, we thank You for this course. We thank You for the opportunity to study and learn what it is to pray to you, to call upon the most mighty and high ruler of all the universe. And God, we just ask that if it's for the first time, that you would be our king today, that we would realize that we aren't right before you and that we would trust in you to be our righteousness. We ask, O Lord, that you would help us to engage every day in the simple things of praying to you, of remembering what you've done and speaking out what you have done, that we might witness to all around and to all the forces and all the heavenly places that we belong to you, and we are part of your kingdom, and you are more powerful than every other entity or power in the universe. So, bless us as we go today. Help us to worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.